Hello and welcome to Boothcast. On Boothcast, I interview people who've inspired me about sport, business and their mindset. Today's podcast is brought to you by Booth Training. Booth Training is your one-stop shop for all ocean sports training and I'm here to help you get better. Today on Boothcast, we have Kenny Kaneko. Kenny Kaneko is a four-time national champion in stand-up in Japan. He is coming from Japan today and we, I'm really happy to have him on the show. So, Kenny, thanks for, thanks for joining me. Yeah, thank you for having me, Boothy. So, on all these Boothcasts, I talk a little bit about people's story and, and sort of give people a, back, a background sort of check or an insight into where you're from. I know you're originally born in Japan, you went over to the US and you sort of did a few different things over there. So, can you give us um, your story about how you started and how you got involved in paddling? Yeah, so um, paddling came to me late in my life, um, like unlike some kids that start paddling when they're, you know, eight or even like 15, 16, you know, I only started paddling when I was 19. But um, before that, I grew up, I was born in Japan, grew up here. And um, my dad was always a surfer, like he went to college in Southern California and stuff. So he had me on the water, but I hated it. Like when I was maybe four or five, he got me surfing. I hated it so much. And then um, I always wanted to be a soccer player. So I played soccer while I was in Japan. And our family actually moved to Southern California, um, not for my parents' job or anything, but uh, just because my dad wanted to raise us somewhere he thought was perfect, you know, like um, just more free than Japan more ocean nature and um just kind of kind of like an american dream you know it's it's kind of hard for me to understand now because we live in such a global environment but back then he just wanted to take us with no visas or anything and um we just kind of ended up in irvine california and um lived there for 10 years i was super into soccer so that was kind of my sport that i did every day passionately and um i actually got on the under 15 16 u.s national team for soccer yeah. and um that was kind of what brought me back to japan was to play soccer professionally um because i was in the u.s national team pool but i didn't have a citizenship so i couldn't play in any of the um any of the official matches. I could go to training camps and stuff, but could not play. And um, when everyone was gearing up for the U17 World Cup, like I was kind of lost because I had no connection in Japan and um, I really wanted to go. So I had some contacts um, with some of the professional teams over there, over in Japan, and um, actually got a contract to play with one of the professional teams in Tokyo. So that's kind of what brought me back to Japan. Yeah. And, and how did you um, go in the, in the soccer? Like, were, were you, did you play professionally in the end or was it? Um, no, it's, pretty cool. it's uh, it, it was a tough transition for me moving back to Japan because one, I didn't speak Japanese very well. I couldn't read Japanese. So um, it was very hard for me to communicate with the players and the coaches over here. And um, just the, just the training environment's so different, like the work ethic compared to the US and Japan. Like um, when I played in the US, I'd practice for an hour and a half a day, you know, but I move over here and it's like three hours every day 
plus like 10k running and I actually got injured um did my second ACL in my left knee my third month here and yeah. that was kind of like my senior year, year in uh high school so I was like do I keep pursuing this or do I go to university you know and try to live a normal life um so I kind of gave up on soccer then because I was like I don't I don't think um no team like they were gonna sign me but because of my injury they kind of decided not to sign me and I was like shit you know like with a torn ACL like all my goals and everything I worked up to could end up in nothing you know so I was like I might as well try and go to university and live a normal life yeah yeah so and what is kind of the end of it <laughs> what did you what did you end up studying at university like obviously you had that big passion to play soccer and then you had that different cultural difference I guess coming back to Japan and then you went to university you started to I guess feel out the Japanese culture which is actually technically where you're yeah where you were born and where you're from what was that transition period like and then moving into university how was how was that whole environment because uh, did you go to an international university or was it, was it a Japanese university so I um I went to a university in Japan called um, International Christian University. It's one of the major universities um, in Japan now, like the emperor's daughter goes there and stuff. But the reason I decided to go there was because they had, um, they had, um, what do you call it? Uh, classes for people that come in from Japanese schooling, but at the same time, they had people that come in from international schooling. Yeah. So I got in from like the international schooling and um, basically it was a hard transition because I was so lost in life. Like I had no goals, no motivation. And um, I kind of partied really hard like my first year. Yeah. And then I was like, I was going to Roppongi in Tokyo. I'm not sure if you know about Roppongi, but no. Tell every me night it. it's, it's basically like, like where all the clubs are in Japan yeah. and because I was you know growing up playing soccer I didn't drink I never partied or anything and then all that was lost and I had freedom you know and I kind of got got in this bad spiral just like partying every night getting home to my dorm at like 6 a.m. missing all my classes and then going to parties and stuff and I did that for a year and I was like what am I doing with my life, you know? <laughs> and um, I used to love surfing. Um, like, cause when I moved to the US, I didn't surf until maybe middle school, but because all my friends started surfing, like I got back into it and I was surfing every morning. And um, that was kind of my, like uh, the a way to relieve all my stress. But I moved to Japan and I'd go surfing cause like the ocean was close to me, but there's no waves. And when there is, there's like 200 people in the water. Yeah. And the vibe here is like, you know how you get in the water and you're like, hey, what time is it right now? Like that kind of communication. I remember doing that like the first couple of times and people would look at me like, don't even talk to me. So like that was stressful. And I, I just didn't have any way to kind of feel alive 
you know, I was just kind of going through the motions. And then my dad always paddled, you know, he's been paddling for 30 years. And he was like, why don't you come paddling with me on the two man outrigger? So I did that and it was like a windy day and I went upwind and back down surfing downwind. And I was like, oh, this is like the best feeling I've had in a long time. So that's kind of what got me into paddling, just that experience. And then since that first paddle, I just stopped partying and everything. Yeah. Yeah. So you went to university around like 1920, I guess, and you've had that big year of partying. Was it, was it quite difficult for you? I guess you're going through that period where you've, you've had this like dream to be a professional soccer player and that hasn't worked out. You've had a few injuries. You've struggled culturally. What, um, I guess assimilating back into the Japanese culture, like I know you were from, I think you were originally born in Chigasaki, then you've lived in Southern California. You've come back and now you live in Hayama. Hayama, yeah, yeah. And how hard was that transition? Because like I know even just when I first started traveling and going overseas and, and seeing how different cultures operate, it was always a, like you have like that culture shock essentially where you're going there and you're like, whoa, like these people get up at like, you go to Spain and people are waking up at like 9, 10 a.m. and they're having breakfast at 11 and then they have dinner at 10 p.m. at night time. And you're like, what are you guys doing? Like, this is weird. Like, yeah. I, need, I need to get up and have my morning coffee at six. And yeah. uh, it must have been so different going from the American culture to the Japanese culture. Would you think that was one of the major effects of like being, I guess, moving back, like having that sort of tough year, those few tough years, and then obviously finding paddling? Yeah, so um, Japanese culture is totally different. Um, and the biggest thing for me was when I lived in the US, I thought I was American, you know? Like, I didn't have any Japanese friends, even though I lived in Irvine, where there's a lot of Japanese people. Yeah. And all my friends were, you know, American, like Latino or Caucasian, you know? And um, I was kind of embarrassed to be Japanese. Um, I can say this now, but um, so when I moved back to Japan, I was like, I, I didn't look down on the Japanese people, but I was like, I thought I was just so much better. But then every day I had like rude awakenings, you know, like I would miss practice or be an hour late because I couldn't get on the right train because I couldn't read kanji or something. Just like stuff like that. And I, when I went to Shibuya or got on the train, like I would literally freak out because I felt so claustrophobic. Like you go on the Japanese trains and it's, there's no mercy in there, you know, like people rubbing and pushing against you. And I'm like, I have to get out. Like I get nauseated and stuff. And um, it was just different. And the expectation of people, like, even if you don't have your free time, like they expect you to do something if the coach says something, you know. Or like if, when I was working part-time, if your boss said something like that is expected, like no questions asked kind of thing. Yeah. And I remember getting myself in trouble, like, cause I'm in the US, you know, in the educational system, you're supposed to question the teachers, you know, like, like curiosity is something that was kind of planted in me. And yeah. um, I remember like team meeting, first team meeting, I asked the coach something. And he literally told me to go run for like an hour and a half, you know? <laughs> yeah. So like, so yeah, big, 
big cultural difference, you know, like, and it wasn't even a bad question. It was kind of like, like, why are we, why in the game kind of thing? Yeah. And then he kind of screamed at me in front of everybody and kind of like was kind of racist to me too, you know, like, oh, you don't know the culture, blah, blah, blah. So I had a big identity crisis, you know, I didn't yeah. really know who I was because when I'd go to the U.S., I'm Japanese. But when I came to Japan, I did not feel welcome. Almost. Yeah. 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 It must have been so difficult because <laughs> obviously you don't speak the, the, the language. You, you are technically like, well, you are Japanese, but you've, you've never lived there. You've always had your Japanese passport, but you've always lived in the U.S. With, with your family and you come back and it's just like such a big culture shock. Like people don't accept you and you've got all these different things to to try and work out like obviously even just like the simple things like catching the train like not understanding kanji and not being able to communicate in the way that, that you're expected to be able to communicate would have been so hard so when you ca came into paddling and you had that paddle with your father did yeah. things change yeah i mean things changed because um i made paddling friends like um in university and they were like multicultural like me, you know, they weren't, they understood what it was like to be raised in the US and stuff. And also paddling gave me an opportunity to start traveling to Hawaii and stuff. And, you know, like I love the paddling culture. I still do of, you know, just like paddling with each other and having beers after, or just like kind of kicking back and talking story kind of thing. And, um, that was very relieving for me at that time in my life because if I was drinking, I was partying hard. You know, it was never just to talk story or anything. And I was like, if I can get on the water and just enjoy nature and after that, just like kick back and have beers and talk story, like what else do I need in life kind of thing. So um, that kind of led me into living the life i live right now you know and when you're yeah. living in japan like where did you where did you go paddling like was it around chikasaki or was it did you have like a different area that you went paddling in and and who were the people that you sort of went to hawaii to paddle with as well so um the first time like i started paddling it was in chikasaki and our house was you know like five minute walk from the beach so we'd carry our boat and start paddling in Chigasaki, you know, like that little uh, island or that rock outside of Chigasaki. Yeah. Like we do laps around that, like upwind, downwind kind of thing. And, um, but you also, Chigasaki is kind of a hard area to paddle in because it's kind of just like open and there's no, um, there's no, it's just like a beach, you know, just a long stretch of beach and there's no movement. Like, and that's kind of what led me to move to Hayama, which is maybe 30 minute drive from Chigasaki. Yeah. And um, when I first started traveling to Hawaii, um, my dad was um, friends with Jim, Jim Pody. Yeah. So um, my friends and I would, I had a friend that lived in Kailua. So I stayed at his house and then we'd bike to Jim's house and start paddling his boats from his backyard because it was kind of on the canal in uh in Kailua so um 
and that was amazing you know just like talking story with him and he has so much experience even now you know since I have kids and I'm raising a family like I recently stayed at his house for maybe a week in January but just like just his um perspective on life and stuff is he's a very happy guy you know yeah if I can be as happy as he is when I'm that age and paddling like there's not much I want yeah yeah and I know Jim's like a quite a big figure in the, in the Molokai scenes and obviously seeing him mm -hmm. over there at the events and how is how is his influence on you being able to go over and you know, I know you've done a lot of crossings on the OC um was that was that the first time and how long did you paddle the OC for before you started paddling the stand-up so um I started paddling OC when I was 20 and um you know like meeting Jim and stuff I'd hear stories of Molokai and everybody else in Hawaii they're always like oh the channel the channel and I'm like that's what I want to do and when I started paddling um I kind of got back into like wanting to be competitive because I guess I was always a competitor through my soccer and stuff so I was like if I'm paddling I want to be try and be the best in the world you know like or try and compete with the best in the world um and I remember going to one of the races in Hawaii the Queen Liliokalani race in Kona it's yeah. kind of like uh like one of the biggest races in Hawaii and um, up until then, I thought paddling was what old people did, like my dad. Yeah. And just like, when I was young, I was like, I never want to paddle because that seems like the most boring thing in the world. Like, just like doing the same thing over and over again. And I kind of went there, did the race, the six-man race, um, got like third to last, you know, with our crew and stuff. And, um, and then I saw younger guys paddling in the OC1 race the day after the race and they're like a little older than me and then that's when I first saw Danny um and I was like whoa there's like young guys paddling you know that looks cool and I kind of want to be like them and then I started you know looking stuff up on the internet and I'm like okay I want to try and do Molokai you know so um yeah I've done I think the channel with our canoe club maybe six times and then on the OC one I think four or five times it's hard for me to remember but um yeah that's always been my goal in paddling you know because I've always wanted to be like you know like the people that came before me you know like Danny or like Jim or you know even Travis now like just have respect you know it was it was never about like um wanting to be number one or anything i just wanted to be like be good enough to be respected in paddling yeah well you've definitely done that so i think that's a really cool thing to mm. be able to to appreciate like being respected i know i respect you greatly and i really enjoy racing with you and having beers with you after races and just talking story as you say like that's my favorite thing to do is to talk story so um yeah when you're when you're when you're in, uh, like inspired by travis and danny like were they the guys that you sort of aspired to be like and you wanted to sort of be able to race them and compete against them and were they like the, the guys that sort of helped you i don't know when you were training and you wanted to get out of bed were they are they someone you wanted to like be like and you were like i want to try and beat those guys 
Yeah, so um, I think my biggest influence in paddling was Danny, because, yeah. you know, um, when I saw him at that Kona race, I'm like, well, he, well, he's not that tall, and, you know, he's not like a, I mean, he's ripped, but he's not like a LeBron James or anything, you know, like, um, he's no Cristiano Ronaldo, like, yeah. and I'm like, yeah, um, the competition in soccer is enormous, you know, and I'm like, compared to that, if I really put my mind into it, maybe I can be one of the best in paddling, you know, so um, I'd watch all his videos, you know, he has very good technique, especially in the outrigger, like he's, he's textbook, you know, and he's got great training ethic and stuff. So I'd, that would, he was one of the guys I studied a lot. Yeah. But at the same time, um, every time I'd go to Hawaii, like first time I went to Hawaii for the OC1 race, um, it was a race from Makapu to um, Waikiki, I think, um, in front of Hilton. And yep. I was maybe like second to last. Like, and there was like 100 people racing. And I remember not being able to keep up with like, like old women, you know, like, like, <laughs> yeah. like in her 60s like yeah i'd be paddling so hard and i was like ah like i just want to be better than these ladies that kill it on the water you know yeah so i didn't i always had like danny or like travis or um even other people like Karel tresnak or stuff that i looked up to but i had you know closer goals like that old woman that I couldn't keep up with yeah you know and every time I'd go over I'd have newer goals you know this 50 year old guy that I can't he's like 200 pounds but I can't keep up so um and it's kind of like the same right now you know there's people I feel like I should be able to beat or keep up what keeps me going every day almost yeah, and you, yeah. I think you've had it like obviously a really big growth period. I think in paddling because I guess starting paddling when you're 20 is a lot different to. But you had done sports, obviously, you've done a lot of soccer training, and you got fitness through that. But being in the ocean and being on the water and learning all those skills at a later age, it must have been, been a little bit harder. And that that like slow growth must have taken a long period of time because starting paddling at 20 and then doing outrigger paddling for four or five years and then starting to do the stand up as well. Must've been mm -hmm. such a, 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 a fun period because you would have obviously constantly noticed that, that growth obviously been going from the uh, old ladies beating you, old 60 year old women yeah. beating you and, and outrigger races to, to being towards the front of the field and, and being towards the front of the field in the sup. That must've been a, a cool journey to be a, like to be on. Yeah. And um, when I think back at it now, I probably, I mean, I still enjoy paddling now, but that was when I enjoyed it, like, the most, you know, like, because it was like, I don't know, it's hard for me to say, but just having um, goals that, like, I'm working towards is, is, and being bad at something was so new since I was good at soccer, you know, like, I could go onto any field and feel comfortable, whereas I li line up on a start line and it was like the most uncomfortable feeling I've had in my life. Or yeah. in Hawaii, like during the night, I couldn't sleep because I could hear the coconut trees or palm trees, like just like 
you know how it is just you know ripping because of the wind and i'm like i don't want to be out there right now <laughs> yeah kind of thing but just that transition from being like that to you know wanting it to be windy or you know it's it has been a great journey when i look back at it it's only been 12 years which is which is long but at the same time it feels short to me you know and that's why i feel like because i started so late even though in suck i'm a little older than everybody like i still have a lot more to learn and grow yeah yeah i don't think you're that much older than me mate i think you've only got three years on me so it's yeah, yeah I, i'm kind of similar in a way because i started stand-up paddling late um, compared to obviously guys like Connor and and Kai and Zane and Casper and they all sort of started when like were 14, 16 or yeah. younger right, even and like they're like sort of the the greats of the sport and they're like 23, 24, 25 and I'm 29 and I'm older than them. I didn't start paddling <laughs> this up really till I was 25. So it was it's it's been an interesting journey for me because I feel like I'm only getting better because I'm still learning so much about that the sport, but you do have like other years of training and behind you, but it's still always a cool journey because especially in stand-up, things are always developing. You've got new races, new courses, um, new challenges that come along. Like there's always yeah. the new kids are coming through that probably smashes very soon. And there's like, yeah, just constant changes. So how was, so you, you started Outrigger from 20, how long were you paddling Outrigger seriously for? And what type of races were you doing in, in that time? I know you did the, um, the, the Molokai, but were you going over to like the US and doing races as well? Or were you just racing in Japan? How did that all look for you? Um, so I did the Outrigger from when I was 20 to 25, seriously. Um, because once I started stand-up, like there was a phase where I did both, seriously. But... I realized if I really wanted to make it in stand-up, like I had to put all my effort and power into it. But um, on the outrigger, I only went to Hawaii and I did, I did the dragon run, the Hong Kong race, but it's more of a surf ski race, you know? Um, and uh, their outrigger paddling is like starting, especially OC1 is starting to grow a lot now. But um, back then it was, it was still relatively new, you know, mm. um, in the U S there weren't many races like the gorge race. I don't think was around back then or not to the, um, capacity of how it is right now over there. You know, there's like 200, 300 people racing there, but since that race wasn't happening, everything was my whole year was for Molokai kind of thing. You know, I take nine months, periodize my training and train just for Molokai and everything else was you know there were races in Japan but at the same time you know Japan like it's so hard to store an OC1 or even a surf ski over here it was such a small sport you know we I would have to host races so um I've been hosting races since I was 20 over here and we get maybe 40 people and then there's sup races here every weekend and there's like 200 people every weekend, you know? So um, the reason I got into sup was because I wanted people to realize that outrigger canoe paddling existed. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and then you started of, to love stand-up. <laughs> yeah, and then I started to love stand-up. I mean, like, 
when I was traveling to Hawaii, like Danny and Travis and them, I saw them getting into stand-up. And um, they were kind of making a life out of it almost, you know. And paddling, you never, I never thought you could become professional in paddling. But at the same time, when I was growing up and when I was 24, 25, I was like, if I want to keep paddling every day, even after I get married and have kids, I have to make it a job. Because if I saw so many people that paddled, when they get a job where they get kids, you know, they disappear for like two, three years. And a lot of the times that's when you're peaking in paddling, you know, you build up to it, you're like 28, 29, and you're about to blossom and you have kids and family and you can't paddle anymore. Yeah. So I was always trying to figure out how you could make a living off paddling. So when I have kids or when I got married, I could be like, honey, I'm going to work and get on the water. <laughs> so when I saw stand-up kind of getting big over here, um, I took it as an opportunity. I'm like, you know what? I'm going to do this and try and make it a job kind of thing. So that was kind of how I got into stand-up in 2013. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, I had similar, very similar thought process to you. I always wanted to follow my passions and try and just make a career out of paddling and sport because it's something that I just really enjoy doing. And I didn't want to get to that point as you're talking about when you do have wife and kids and, and you got to like uh, get the nine to five and everyone's like, oh, you can't make anything out of paddling. You can't make anything in paddling. I still got people tell me that they go down to training sometimes. It's like, oh, you'll never make anything out of paddling. I was like, what do you think I do? I was like, this is my yeah, job. Yeah. I was like, it yeah. might not last forever, but I'm going to try and keep it going for as long as I can. So yeah, um, yeah, it's cool to hear that you had the same vision in a different way from Outrigger to, to SUP and I sort of had the surf speed to SUP route. Um, it was cool. Mm. You obviously like aspired to be like Danny and Travis and you saw those guys as sort of your idols and sort of helped you move into the sub space. Can you tell mm. us a little bit about the scene of stuff in Japan? Like I know there's a lot of events and like, I know like when I go to events, when I come to Japan, like the Jigasaki cup for a, a while and they have the APP Japan race kind of feel like in a way that you're a celebrity and it's probably the, the place in, in the world where I, I most feel like I'm a professional athlete in a way because mm. people really do treat you like, you're something special and you are someone they aspire to be like so can you explain the Japanese sub scene a little bit for us yeah so um the Japanese sub scene is um I think is very healthy especially compared to um a lot of other countries I know Europe is huge but I think Japan is similar in a sense that um one is we have good distributors that actually um it's part of their big business you know, so a lot of companies that distribute sub stuff, they don't just do sub, they do like surfing, snowboarding and stuff. So they have the funding and the budget to um, promote well over here. And even like, um, you would know, Starboard Japan, they were a part of a big distributor firm, one of the biggest in outdoor sports. And um, because Starboard was doing so well, they kind of branched out and started Starboard Japan. Yeah. But um, I think because of that fundamental platform over here, they've done a very good job of growing the sport and, you know, doing like, uh, what do you call it? Like running events or like events where people can test boards and stuff. Yeah, you like know? demo days. 
yeah, demo days. Like they do demo days and a lot of the brands work together. So they'll have big demo days in one area, another area, and every race there's like every brand comes to and has demo days too. So that kind of makes it easy. And the biggest thing in Japan is um, surfing is huge over here. Like there's a lot of surfers, but there's no waves. So um, SUP is just a great opportunity for people to get on the water and kind of be like a surfer without having to get pummeled by waves kind of thing. Yeah. So I think that's why it's taken off big time. And, you know, like Instagram and stuff has helped um, with SUP, you know, because people don't want to kayak because that's what old people do. But on a SUP, you can go out in boardies and bikini and, you know, take photos of everyone. So I think the reason why stand-up is so big over here is um, not just the racing, but there's a lot of people that do it on the weekend, um, which help the shops that um, help these people get on the water. And when the shop has money, like they can run cool events that make it worthwhile for, um, for paddlers to attend to and new paddlers to come into. So it's kind of like a very good spiral. Um, from March to October, I think we have a race in Japan every weekend. Um, and there will probably be at least 120 people at every one of those races kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's a really like strong sub scene. It's probably one of the strongest markets. I know when I go over there, like I talk to Gamasan and Shigeki and they're always like really pumped over the sub scene. Yeah, actually like when you get over there, you feel really a part of something really special. And even going to Osaka last year, I hadn't been in Japan in two years and it was just really nice. And you can show how much those guys really appreciate you coming over. So I always try to get over to Japan and, and race. Um, so not only, so you're racing in Japan um, at the elite level. What's it like? I know you've, you've won four Japanese titles. When, when are those races run and um, how competitive is that race over there? So um, the Japan nationals is end of the year, probably similar to Australia, like um, October, November. Um, and the best guys in Japan will show up to that race. Um, the Japanese people I've found living here for 10 years, they love like national titles. They love titles, even if it's probably bigger for me in terms of like um, for endemic sponsors and stuff to win a national title than like a Japan Cup or even a Euro Tour race, you know? Yeah. Like, so I make sure that I show up to that race fit um, because I've showed up to that race without preparing because it usually lands right after um ppg and one year like i had no training for the race i showed up and i lost out and it was like people i didn't make a big deal out of it but people made such a big deal out of it that yeah i became so self-conscious of myself and i'm like i never want to do that again because yeah. to me it's like i'd rather prove myself on a bigger stage but <laughs> to everyone else it's like wow you lost like what's happening kind of thing you know and i'm like well if you make it a big deal then it kind of becomes a big deal to me too so um now i make sure i'm fit and uh 
there's a lot of younger guys in Japan coming up because, because, you know, like you and a lot of the international athletes come to Japan, you know, do Japan Cup Zamami. Like, there's a lot of kids that aspire to be um, professional stand up athletes in Japan, probably more than any other country. Um, which is good, you know, there's, you know, a kid, Rai, he's probably one of the best up and comers, like he sprints like a maniac. And basically, he's homeschooled to become a professional paddler, you know, yeah, which is, really cool. you know, which is a great opportunity, right? Like, um, and Shrimpy, you know, he killed it at 12 towers, like, he downwinds probably 100 kilometers a week, kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Taku and him have been paddling every time. Like I know when I go to every race with Taku and Shrimpy, we always get a photo together. And I remember getting my first one with him in like PPG in like 2015 because Taku actually knew Dean Gardner and I, obviously that was our relation, how we knew each other. And mm. um, yeah, it was just really cool to be able to get those photos. And, and obviously I haven't been beaten by Shrimpy yet, but I'm sure it's not far away. So yeah, just, uh, <laughs> it's a really cool, it's just a really cool thing to see that the kids coming through and aspiring to, to be professional paddlers because I didn't even know what stand up was when I was their age. So it's cool that it's being exposed to more people and you do have the, those kids in Japan being able to see it as a future. And I know I've, I, I don't know if I've raced right, but I've seen him race and geez, yeah, he sprints so fast. Like I wouldn't be able to keep yeah. up. Yeah. And you know, like um, the biggest thing is like um, in the U S or Australia where you guys have such great athletes, you guys are, second generation third generation paddlers which is um the biggest setback for japan is everyone that is competitive at my age or even in their 20s is a first generation paddler right yeah. like we didn't have paddling growing up and that's kind of what holds us back in terms of feeling the ocean or just you know having that natural abilities there's some things that you just can't just work hard at you know that come natural to you i know i've listened to your podcast everyone does you know like the nipper boarding and the nippers you know like that helps you guys have great sup paddlers surf ski paddlers outrigger paddlers you know and that's all because i think you guys get into it early and with shrimpy or like rye you know like they are second generation so um they'll probably be more competitive than we've ever been on the international stage because of that, you know? Yeah, no, it's really cool to see that the Japanese kids are picking up on it. And we do have that benefit in here in Australia where water sports is such a big thing in our life. Like we, we all live right near the beach, like all within like a hundred kilometers or 50 kilometers or whatever it is. There's no real like, uh, satellite cities in the, in the middle of australia that just doesn't happen so if you don't learn how the skills and and the, and the ability to be able to swim and be able to understand the ocean currents and that sort of thing there isn't that big risk of being able to drown or all those sort of problems so parents are like no nah, they just go in the nippers and i'll put my kids in the nippers for sure because i want them to learn those skills um and so it's it is cool seeing you and I, it was actually interesting hearing your point that before about um winning the national title um, because I know that for me as well, like winning something that was called a world title. I remember I won my, won my first one in 2016 in Fiji. And honestly, it meant nothing to me at the time. Like I raced weekend before, cause it was a money race somewhere. Like it was like a Red Bull race. I think it was like an obstacle uh -huh. course. I raced Trevor Tunnington 
did that and the next weekend I flew to Perth to race the West Coast downwinder because I, I was trying to make money and not until probably like a year later or six months later I, I realized how how much more important that was to, to the sort of like the blue chip sponsors and people to yeah. un- actually understand your sport because when you're talking to the general population or just anybody out there like they understand a world title they understand an Australian title they, they understand a European tour title but it doesn't really mean as much like you're your world and your national title are the, the main ones that people understand because they're used to the, the pathway systems that lead to the Olympics or that lead to like a certain world championship level. And yeah, it, it was really eye-opening for me because I know I've had bigger yeah, race right. wins than those, technically those world titles that I've won or the national titles I've won, like the Carolina Cup was probably my biggest win ever. But nobody, yeah. if, I go, if I got someone go, yeah, I'm a Carolina Cup champion, they're like, yeah, what's that? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You know, yeah, like, or like yeah. you say, like one of the, like Danny or Connor or those guys probably like, oh, yeah, one PPG. And that's inside our sport. Like, that's the biggest event you probably could win. But to somebody outside the sport and trying to educate someone about that stuff, it's just like, yeah, what, what, what are you talking about? So, yeah, yeah. it was interesting talking about that. But so you're also involved heavily in um, selling different things as well. So I know you have your own paddles, you have mm-hmm. um, your training programs, you have boards with one this up. Can you tell us a little bit about that and how that works in Japan? Yeah. So um, the biggest thing for me was um, when I started stand up, it is, um, it is, it is a business, you know, like um, I do love getting on the water, but at the same time, if I can't provide for my family, like, um, there's almost no legitimacy in doing it now, you know. Um, I'd rather go and make some money doing something else, providing for my family. But at the same time, you know, putting money and time into myself being an athlete, I, I just see it as an investment. And you probably see it like that too, you know. It's like you invest so much money and time into what you do that any opportunity to try and you know, make it financial, uh, financial, um, financially viable. Yeah. Yeah. Viable. You know, it's like, you kind of have to try and start other stuff, you know, cause right now I don't, I don't see myself making money off like everything off my making a living off sponsors, you know? So I have to do clinics and, you know, I kind of took it, out of like the triathlon or the marathon textbook because I study those two sports a lot. Like I listen to podcasts or like listen to everything. And the way a lot of those people do it is like, yeah, they have training programs and then they have, you know, businesses other than that. So an opportunity for me was the paddle business was basically um, my whole thing with the paddle was I was always using other paddles because when I was with another board sponsor, they had paddles and I had to use their paddles. But because I'm very um, picky when it comes to equipment, like I'm not like a Lincoln that can get on anything and be like, yeah, I'll make it work kind of guy. You know, I really have, because I guess I came into the sport late. Like I'm so sensitive to a point where like, I always blame it on equipment kind of thing. You know, if I feel like I'm not on the best equipment. So I was like, the biggest thing for me was, I don't want to get in trouble for saying this, but paddles with concaves, like deep concaves and stuff. 
I never liked because no outrigger canoe paddle has that concave. Yeah. And, um, you know, you kind of just feel that getting stuck on the recovery, you know, like going into your next stroke. And I was always looking for just a normal paddle, like nothing special, just a flat, normal paddle that's kind of teardrop shape. And I couldn't find any, so I'm like, I might as well make my own and try and sell it in Japan, you know, and try to make it a business. So when people ask me what's so special about your paddle, I'm like, there's nothing special. Like a paddle is something you catch the water with, plant it, and if it doesn't get stuck in the back, I'm happy, you know? Yeah. Yeah, that was interesting uh, as well because your your approach to paddles is so different to mine and i think it really relates to our background because i was using an outrigger paddle the other day i think it was a i think it might have been a 425 and i was paddling a pukea mm-hmm. with um gordon simpson adam fay over here in perth and i was using the outrigger paddle i was like this thing just like cavitates it doesn't like grab the water <laughs> yeah. like it was just like so much different because i'm used to like the double concave that i have in my paddle and mm. i i like that because of now that you now that you say it i hadn't even thought of that but because of my background with surf ski and and kayak, you had like the big wing paddles with the big catch point, and like it didn't really cavitate through the stroke. But if you don't, because mm. like with the flat blades, if you don't hit it properly, it, it doesn't, it's not very forgiving. So it was yeah. just like, yeah. it's, it's, it's very interesting to hear that your background is very different than my background, and we have different likes. And that's what I always try and say to people as well. I'm like, just because yeah. I like this paddle doesn't mean you're yeah. going to like it, but I can tell you why you'll like it for these reasons. And if that works for you, that's fantastic. It's same as like technique or, training or anything yeah. like that we all have our different ideas and they all work but it's just about yeah. what, what works for you yeah so basically i think that's a great point because i've been on a surf ski twice and every time i get on a surf ski like i can't get my blade out of the water yeah because it gets stuck in the back and i fall into the water you know because yeah. i'm naturally pulling a little further back you know and then i can't get that scoop out of the water very well and that's yeah. kind of how it feels when I have a concave sup paddle. Yeah. So, um, yeah, like I never, I hate going to people and be, being like, hey, this is the best paddle that you can ever paddle kind of thing, you know, because equipment and stuff, it's just like, you know, what color do you like? Like, yeah. you, can never, you can never say red is the best color, you know, because yeah. people have preferences and, um, I mean, I love trying everything too, you know, like, because I'm close with a lot of the distributors here, I try every board and I try every paddle. Yeah. And, and try and, you know, when I design boards with Ben from one or something like that, something I take stuff out of everything, you know? Yeah. And people can call it stealing, but at the same time, it's like taking what you like from something and making it your own is yeah it's kind of um how i see myself going into training too you know like i'll be listening to a marathon or like track and field guy podcast and i'm like i'm stealing this workout because i think it can help me with my training you know and yeah that's that's kind of i have fun doing that yeah, yeah as, as long as you take the idea and make it your own, it's not necessarily plagiarizing. You're not necessarily copying. Like, of course, you're going to be influenced by the people around you and the things that you listen to and the things that you see. And 
you, as long as you take the idea and you, you make it your own, it's, it's like how everybody learns. It's how probably the people that you're like listening to or, or seeing their ideas, that that's how they got the idea in the first place. Like they didn't just go wake up one day and go, I'm going to design a sup because everybody's designed sups before you, you know, like it, it's, there's only so many ways you can do it. And like, it's so funny you talking about like selling and talking about colors. It's like, I remember listening to this, I think it might've been a comedian. It's like, well, red's a good color for a Ferrari, but it's not a good color for a period or like green's good for grass, but it's not good for vomit or like, you know what I mean? There's all those like different yeah. connotations of colors. And it was just funny that you brought it because that's the first thing that came to my mind. Um, yeah. So yeah, you're talking like, about, sorry. Yeah, no. And I think, you know, in a sense, like, it's good to um, kind of take what you like from what someone's doing. It's a compliment to what you're doing, you know? Some people might be like, oh, he's getting into my realm of things, whatever, or he's stealing. But, you know, I never hear that from people that are, like, at the very top, you know? Like, people that aren't there, like, maybe they'll feel threatened. But if you're you know, happy with what you've done and stuff. Like if someone is kind of stealing something out of your textbook, like you'll be like, great, you know, that elevates what I'm doing kind of thing. And I think that's so important in stuff. Like, um, like I know you do it very well, you know, presentable, professional, like look at the banner behind you, you know, like that's like nobody else would do that in our sport. But at the same time, if kids come up to me and they're like I want to be a professional paddler what do I do do I do this training I'm always like training and being fast is only like one thing out of the 10 things you need to be a professional paddler in this sport you know you got to be smart you got to be friendly you got to be marketable so I would be like yeah don't copy what this guy's doing look at what Michael's doing kind of thing right like because I think that's so important. And for them, it's not stealing what you're doing. It's just like trying to, you know, make that their own. Yeah. And, you know and what that's I'm what, saying. Yeah. yeah, no, I know completely what you're saying. And I think you're probably using the wrong word with stealing. But when you're talking about this sort of stuff, I try and when I try and do things, I try and lead by example. Like I don't go around and go like, like talk to all the guys in the top 10 and go, guys, you have to be presentable. You have to do this. You have to do that. I'm like, no, no, like I, I just wear the stuff. I like make sure that I'm presentable every time that I go to a race. I'm like, I want to look like an F1 driver every time I go somewhere because if there's a, if there's a potentially a blue chip sponsor who wants to support our sport walking around, they go, Oh, I wonder what he does. Like he looks like he knows what he's doing or he, he looks like, even if I have a terrible race, like I make sure when I finish the race, I shake everyone's hand. I congratulate everyone. Then I go and be a sook by myself in my hotel room and think about what I've done and try and make sure that I, I get better for the next time. But I always, make sure that I'm presentable. I always make sure that I'm talking to people. I'm positive. I, I try and I guess give the sport somebody to look up to. And I, and obviously I, I don't, I'm not the person that everybody looks up to, but I try and make sure that the way I present myself is the way that I want somebody else to present themselves. And it's the same way. Like if you go back to the, the, I don't know, the normal community standards of like treat others with respect or treat others with the way that you want to be treated. And, I try and present myself the way I want other people to present themselves. So actually can help elevate all paddle sports. Like in doing, even doing this booth cast, it's about talking to different paddlers from different backgrounds and actually realizing that we're all a paddling community and not having mm. like those different sects of 
paddling because we all are part yeah. of the same people. Like whether you're a stand-up paddler, an outrigger paddler, a surf ski paddler, a sprint kayaker, a, a dragon boater. Like not that I know many dragon boaters, but maybe eventually <laughs> I'll get one of them on here. But you know, like we're all just paddlers, and we all want our sport to be bigger, and we all want to help others see how great our sport is. And for sure, that's that's just my way of trying to do it. And people have their different approaches, and I, I hope the kids do look at what I do. And and I do get messages sometimes saying like kids are like I got a message yesterday even where someone was like oh my kid really loves you from we're from Malaga in Spain and we we'd love you to send him a birthday message and if that you know I'll do that because if that helps inspire that kid to become a paddler and chase their passion instead of getting sucked into the system essentially that mm. I've, I've done my job and and that's that's sort of I get more fulfillment out of that than I do probably about from winning a race or doing something along those lines exactly I think I feel I feel the same way and it's at the end of the day it's like if this is your profession, like any profession, if you're going to work, you tidy up, you know, yeah. like you don't just rock up like barefoot, you know, like board shorts and yeah. a ripped rip t-shirt kind of thing, you know, like, so um, that's the thing. It's if you want it to just be a lifestyle thing and you want to do a nine to five job, like then, yeah, maybe you can walk around like that. But at the same time, it's like, if you want to do it, your job. I mean, like, I'll say this right now, because most of my sponsors are Japanese sponsors that probably won't listen to this. <laughs> but like, if I had my options, I would just wear a normal t-shirt that I like, and board shorts and barefoot at every race, you know, yeah. but because I want to make it my job, like, sometimes I don't want to, but I put on a jersey that has logos on it you know it's like you got to realize you can't have everything you know yeah well you're you're essentially an ambassador for not only for yourself but you're an ambassador for the sport that you're in and exactly. i've like think about how many times you've been told you can't make a career out of paddling you can't make money out mm -hmm. of paddling you can't it's just a, it's just a lifestyle job like you need to get a real job you need to do this and like I, I got that from my parents i got that from like naysayers in the paddling community I got that from and i was just like just because you say it can't be done doesn't mean it can't be done and i was like there's exactly. so many all the all the successful people who've made things out of themselves in like different parts and different sects of their life are probably told exactly the same thing and it's like we can we can control our time and effort and if we want something enough we can make it happen and that's that's the thing that motivates me it's about just just doing what i want to do and proving people wrong i just love doing that like it's just mm. been one of the things i've always been able to do and pride myself on and if there's a will there's a way at the end of the day yeah imagine the japanese culture you know it's like everyone graduates college and gets a job you know like a businessman job i still have my grandma ask me like every month it's like when are you gonna get a real job <laughs> like mm. i'm like um i i still provide for my family you know it's like yeah have my grandma ask me and i know my wife's parents probably think that too it's like what is he doing like but you know it's because in japan you don't have a culture like that you know to to do what you love kind of thing everyone just kind of you know takes a hit gets a job gets home 10 p.m at night doesn't see their kids goes to work the next day and that's very respectable but at the same time my goal is I wish I can influence more people to do what they love for a living. And that's kind of what I want to do in Japan. 
yeah, and I think that's that's like what you want to do because I I never wanted to be sucked into that system and never see my kids, never see my family. I want to set myself up to a point where I can live the lifestyle I still live in a, in a different way and be able to actually live my life instead of like I always liked it like that quote. It's like you you, you don't live to work like you work to live. Mm. So yeah, you, I, I and I know the, the exact same thing that your grandmother's saying to you because my mum said it to me for I don't know until probably like a year ago and she hates me saying it but she used to always be like when are you getting a real job when are you getting a real job I'm like well this is what I'm doing mum like you get like get used to it because I always um I had the story of like I wanted to quit school in year nine and become a carpenter and parents like no you can't do that like you've got to go to finish school and I'm, I'm glad I finished school and then finished school and then started engineering did engineering for 18 months and then moved up to the Gold Coast didn't really like engineering so I stopped mm. that enrolled in exercise science didn't then didn't start that went back into engineering then finished with a business degree so in my my student debt got a little bit high but it was it was mm. worth it because I ended up being able to earn nothing for four or five years and then be able to make somewhat of a living out of it and I guess if money is your goal then probably sport isn't isn't for you and because it's a hard mm. road and there's a lot of obstacles along the way. Um, what would you think would be your biggest obstacle, obviously being a sportsman and a businessman at the same time? Um, how have you been able to manage that? Um, I think like right now, my biggest obstacle is, uh, well, this, I don't have an office and I have two kids in a small house. So it's really hard to get my business going. Cause yeah. like right now I have my, parents that live five minutes away like playing with my older daughter so yeah. she's not bugging me the whole time you know and it's yeah. like some days go by where I'm like I set out to do this today but um I don't get any of it done because I'm just like playing with my kids you know yeah but um in a in the big picture I think it's hard to um as an athlete I think if you just wanted to get results and win, I think going into business, I mean, you do it well, and I have so much respect for that, but going into business is like, is not something I would recommend because <laughs> your, your headspace is like, as an athlete, all you should be thinking every day is to want to win and get results, right? But at the same time, it's like, do I really want that in my life? You know, like I see it more as a lifestyle. Like I, I do it for the experience, not to push myself. And if I can yeah. win a race or get a podium because of that, great. But you know, all I want to do is get enough results and be good enough that I have the band, I grow my bandwidth so I can influence more people. And, um, yeah, I think that's the biggest thing with balancing business and sport is like, if you really want to be the best in the world, like you look at any Olympic sports, like I have a lot of Olympian friends and that's all they do their whole life. They spend time away from their family, go to training camps and you've really got to think, do you want that or do you want to have balance? And I think balance is the most important thing in my life. And that's why I like having a business and being an athlete yeah I, I couldn't agree more like uh, for everything that i do has always been about balance and i've always um admired i guess the olympic style athletes and who commit four five or uh, four eight ten twelve years or whatever it is to those olympic quests 
but when they do commit so much of their life, that becomes, it's not only, it's like, cause I always like to say like paddling is not who I am. It's what I do. Whereas yeah. something like that becomes swimming or, or running or whatever it is becomes who they are. So then they, mm. a lot of them have that crisis when they finish sport. Um, and like, this is just my observation. Like I don't know anyone personally, I guess who've had it, but I've had a lot of conversations about these things and, they have that they finish and they don't know what to do because they're so confused as to how they define themselves. Because even speaking to Candice Apple the other day, like she, when she was winning a lot of races, she was defining herself as a stand up paddler and as a winner. But then when um, someone like Annabelle came along and beat her, she had like a real crisis because she wasn't winning anymore and she was defining herself as a, as a winner and as a stuff paddler and then she sort of had that crisis so i think it's really important to have that balance to have not only your sport but a good family life good friends a good community around you and then a lot of other things that, you, that you're doing at the same time that allows you to have that balance and I, i'm actually personally of the opinion that by doing all those things you you actually race better because yeah. you're not constant like you get that like you still have your routine you get down you do your sessions and you do what you have to do to win but I find that people generally overthink what they're doing, like mentally, especially like I don't think about a race until I'm on the start line. And that's why I love it. I just like, I obviously I have a plan and I think about a couple of things, but I'm not thinking about a start line for three months at a time and going, okay, I have to do this this way. And I have to do that. It's just like, Hey, I'm just going to go out there. I'm going to do my best and I'm going to see what all these other guys do. And I'm going to race and just see what happens and chase my opportunities when they get them. And, if I finish this race and know that I've done my best job. And that's what I always tell myself. It's just like, as long as I do my best job when I finish this race, that's all I can do. Like winning is great. And winning might be a byproduct of doing your best race or getting on the podium or getting a top six, depending on what your goal is. But it's not the be all and end all because I actually enjoy going to these events. I, I enjoy doing the clinics like you're talking about and meeting new people. I enjoy helping people achieve their goals. And that's like something that's been really cool for me with booth training and with coaching different people, it's been about when they do well, I, I feel the same result internally that I do when I do well, because I actually feel probably more because I've actually helped someone achieve something, which is kind of a cooler process than just doing it by yourself. And same thing when you like, I don't know if someone uses one of my paddles, it's like, Oh, cool. Like I've helped design that and it's, it's enhancing your paddling experience and exactly. or doing these booth casts and, yeah. and doing that and like reaching out to more people and, and talking about paddling and, hearing their stories it's it's just all about like helping people be positive and being able to help more people and that's it's surprising that that's what it's come down to but the more i speak to people is the more the more i understand that what you're trying to do is actually trying to help others and mm. maybe you can make a, a living out of it this is a byproduct of it but yeah at the end of the day that's your that's your that's my goal yeah at the end of the day for me it's it's a lifestyle you know it's not like paddling doesn't define me and it's just a part of my lifestyle that I live, you know, and the big, like when I heard you talk about it, you know, there's Olympians that or athletes that retire from their sport, but I'm never going to retire from paddling. You know what I mean? Like I might take some time off, but maybe I'll be like 45 and try and do Molokai again or something, you know, like, and that's the best thing I think about paddling is it's a lifestyle sport. Um, which is why I want more people to get into it because, and it's, you know, you're injury free most of the time if you do it right, you know? So, um, I can't think of any other sport that is 
that's like that, you know, because running, you know, like after you're 35, like you significantly get slower, you know, you're, you're not running your PBs, you're like personal worst every run you do, you know, but at paddling, it's like, even if you're physically worse, like if you learn how to read the bumps and stuff, like you can be in your fifties and get your PBs, you know? Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's kind of the balance is super important. And um, I agree with everything you're saying. Yeah. It was, it's cool. Yeah, Cause I want to be that 60 year old woman that was beating you in your first paddles when I, when I get, when I, when I turn 60. So it is a lifestyle sport for me and it is something that I want to do for a long time as well. So mm. when you're, when you were looking at sort of 2020, obviously you had lots of different plans. You had a, you had a quite a good season last year. I know you raced really well at the ICF world champs. You're really strong there. Um, you're probably still building as you're talking about, because you've had that late start to paddling and you're constantly learning more and more. What mm. was your plan for 2020 before COVID-19 and what, what, what are you trying to do in, in this period of time? So, um, like going back to, um, last season before I talk about 2020 is, um, I think my mindset changed. Like I was always so nervous before races, but maybe like you were saying last year and the year before, like after I had my first kid, um, I, at one of the races, like I came back in from a race, super upset, but it didn't matter to my daughter. Like the racing didn't matter. And I'm like, huh, like that was kind of a point in my life where I was like, I guess to me before that I'd have a bad race and I'd like be upset about it for a week or two weeks, but it kind of put everything into perspective. And now I just go out there and try and have fun. And that's kind of helped me with my performance. Cause I'd, I'd always be really good in training, but bad in races, you know? Um, and I'm kind of slowly, getting better results in races and um 2020 like with the second kid coming along I kind of want to um and I'm 32 I want to focus on races that mean a lot to me and um not saying that I don't care about like Europe or anything but um I've never done the Euro tour because it just didn't make sense to me you know and it's like like you were saying Bilbao like is probably one of the most competitive races but my sponsors don't care if I win Bilbao you know and I realized you have to spend you know at least three weeks in Europe to have like a good European campaign and I just can't do that financially and family wise so um my focus for 2020 was um doing Molokai on the OC1 which was supposed to happen in three weeks or two weeks and then leading up to the sup molokai because um like molokai if i wanted to win one race in my life that's that's the race i want to win you know because there's just so much like i grew up or i started paddling because of molokai so if there's a race i want to win um that would be the race and i feel like um stand up molokai is you know, I'm, I'm so stressed every time I go on a unlimited and go downwinding because, because you know how to surf and you know how to paddle in that channel. But every time you get on a stand up, like, I feel like I'm just missing bumps, like, or like, just like, just kooking it. 
the whole run or something, you know, I do a Hawaii Kai run and I'd just be like, ah, oh, I missed another one. I missed another one. So until I get good enough to feel like I'm comfortable, like I want to keep doing Molokai and that, that'll probably be the first part of the season for me um, for years to come, you know, just focus on Molokai, train right for it and um, do the race. And um, second half of the year is probably, you know, big races in Japan and the world championships, if it happens or when it happens, you know, like well, which one of these? Exactly. <laughs> like, I'll probably choose the most convenient one logistically. Like, yeah. I like the ICF one because it's only a weekend, you know. ISA yeah. is kind of hard because, you know, there is the surfing and the sup racing and you don't know when you're going to race. And I'm very organized that I want to know exactly when I'm going to race what discipline yeah. you know because i write my training program leading up to an event like that you know i can't just show up to a race and be like am i racing tomorrow or yeah in a week and a half you know yeah i do yeah i do hate the isa format i have sort of had my little different issues with it i know i flew in flew out to <laughs> to um the one in fiji and then um that one in hainan was a bit of a nightmare for me where i flew in and then mm. i changed the race and i flew home and then i flew back the next week yeah i remember that <laughs> yeah it was just like i could stay here and get frustrated and like because we got told a certain thing and and they just decided they'd change it because of the, the, the surfing had to be on it and like i respect the surfers i think that's fantastic but i don't feel like yeah. the waiting their waiting period needs to be at the same time as our racing period because it is essentially two different sports like one's racing sport and one's a a surfing sport and, and that's great and I, and I really respect the surfers and I think they're great but I don't think that we should necessarily have to be there for two weeks for no reason you know like we've exactly. got so many events on our calendar we're trying to to make it a living and it when you have to waste two weeks of your life in one spot it's it's nice and it, I guess if you're going for a holiday once a year it's great but if you're traveling to 25 30 different races each year trying to make it your living and, and it just doesn't work and that's why it be always exactly. been frustration with the isa so that was cool with the icf just having one weekend but they also had their own issues with the the format yeah. and how the day of the yeah. race and changing it but yeah, yeah, yeah. like but it's but i think what, what a lot of people forget with our sport it's still very young and everyone's yeah like, i know in america at the moment everyone's freaking out oh like the sport's dead and i was like that's absolutely rubbish like surf ski and like Surfsky's been around for what 50, 60 years, and Outrigger's been around for less than that, like maybe 40 years or something like that. And they've obviously gone up and down. They've had their their, their good periods and their bad periods. But gee, Sup's got an amazing future. Like it's one of those sports where we can go anywhere. We can we can paddle in any water mm. or any lake, and it's so accessible to the general public. Like most people in the community actually understand what stand up paddling is, and. I think over the next 10 to 15 years, it's going to be really exciting. I think after this COVID-19 crisis, I think it's going to be exciting as well too, because I think people are going to be spending a lot more time in leisure and actually mm. just wanting to do more of those things and realize, I think this, this period where we're at home a lot more, we start to realize what's more important in our lives and we're able to, to spend that with our family and, and want to do more adventurous things and experience more things and not get to not be that Japanese businessman who gets home at 10 p.m. at night, doesn't see his kids and gets up in the morning, goes to work again, which is obviously highly respectable, but it's not really something that I aspire to be like. Exactly, exactly. And I think, um, like, going back to that, I think when I look back after, you know, losing almost a season with this COVID-19, it's like I want to try and put races that um, 
that are great experience, even the travel there and the race itself, you know, I will, I don't, I feel like I don't want to travel just to compete, you know, because I want to look back on the last race I got to do and be like, Oh, that was a great experience, you know? So, um, maybe like Chatterjack or, you know, people talk greatly about that kind of race or, you know, something like that might be in the, on the calendar, but who knows, you know, but definitely Molokai. Yeah. Molokai will be the one that you just keep going back to. And I think it's one that we'll all keep going back to. Like it's a hard race to perfect. And I know for myself personally, because I do do that European leg of the year and I do do go to America before, like I had that eight weeks away and then I, had this i mean dreamland that i'm going to go over and do molokai really well without doing any work for mm. it and it's just not not you just can't do it you've got to actually get out there do the kilometers and you gotta be like it's fine to feel comfortable for 20k but the race is 52k and you've got to be able to paddle well for that whole period and um that's something that i haven't done well and and, and another thing as well like we don't spend enough time on our unlimiteds because we are yeah. constantly racing four teams and four teams is where I guess uh, it is the most financially viable for us. And our sponsors mm. don't really want us to race unlimiteds because like, especially for our board sponsors, they're like, well, yeah. we don't sell any unlimiteds. Like there's just not really a market for us, but we'll do it because we, we want to see you do well and we want to help you. But at the same time, we want you to do all those 14 foot races beforehand because that's where we actually get exposure and we can actually sell boards off those results. And it's a, yeah, it's a really interesting time to be an athlete in our sport. And I was speaking to Tristan the other day and, we're talking about like APP and then you've got like obviously the ISA and the ICF and they're constantly in like arbitration and I was sort of just trying to get the point across that we need to have that pathway and actually create clubs and like create structures where we can actually move the sport forward at the moment no one knows which federation to join or which federation to be a part of and it's uh it's a really confusing time and there's always all those people obviously oh we should have our own federation but yeah I don't think that's going to happen so just I just like to see it all get sorted out I think if we really wanted to grow the sport, like the first step would be like um, to kind of figure out disciplines, you know, because it's all over the place now where like where we can actually like like a Casper can just just focus on a sprint and there's that many sprint races. And, you know, like for you or me, like we like the marathon 10K, 15K races, you know. Um, so I wish we had that right now. like and a season for it you know that would help the athletes a lot yeah. oh absolutely i think and then even like like even i've been talking about board regulation as well like we have a 14 by 22 class or whatever it is and that's and like a weight limit as well like it could be like eight kilos or 10 kilos or 12 kilos or whatever yeah. it is so then it's just like a bit more of an even playing field and everyone doesn't feel like they have to upgrade their board every year or whatever it is they can actually like buy a board that's going to like last them and they can actually just go okay well like even if I buy that border, I can't race on it. So what's the point? Um, it's a it's a really interesting topic because I know other sports have done it and it has helped. But it's also but then the other the flip side of it. Then it's like, but uh, there's the other flip side of it is that that people aren't going to be as innovative with their board designs and they're going to like mm. sort of stick to a structure. But it's like I feel like we're kind of at a point where we're not necessarily getting much faster anymore. Like we're kind of really designed <laughs> or really designed boards now, and you're seeing boards get changed for flat water and and so yeah. and there's like all these different real real flat water board designs coming out now and yeah <laughs> yeah it's just like the evolution has just been insane like over 10 years of yeah. sport, if you put if you put a board 10 years ago like i've i've forgotten to count up we should probably like a 12 6 by 28 or something in the first race he ever did and now mm. you got a 14 by 19 and a half or 20 it's just it doesn't it doesn't compute does it
Yeah, I, I really wish um, we had board classes, you know, like, or a limit, you know, because I think us getting faster is like to the demise of the stand-up sport because we get faster, we get on, and we get better and we get on narrower boards and it's like people just can't relate anymore. Um, whereas I think I, I think that's what happened in the US, you know, when everyone was on like 12.6 by 24, like people could actually paddle it. Yeah. But, you know, when you see guys showing up at PPG and riding their flat water boards in like five foot, you know, like Dana Point, like people just can't relate to it anymore. Yeah. Like I carry my board on the beach in Japan and they're like, what is, people are like, what is this? is the canoe like <laughs> yeah so um i think you know that'll be a hard one to do but i almost wish it was like okay 14 by 23 and 10 kilos and yeah. let's see who's best it's kind of like that nike shoe thing you know it's like that vapor fly it's yeah, like the one that how they, much... they, they broke the record exactly exactly it's like how much are we getting faster you know it's like and you can still be creative with the board design in that box, you know? Um, yeah. Well, yeah, most sure. sports have rules and regulations. It's just because our sport has no federation and, and no real, like, there's obviously different figures in our sport that have their say, whether it's media, whether it's athletes, um, organizations or federations, there's all these different segments of the industry as well. But there's no center figure where we go, we all go to that that sort of point and they, they, they can analyze all the different uh, opinions mm. and make sure that it's like the best decision collectively for everybody. There mm. is just, isn't that point. And until this court of arbitration and still these two federations stop fighting over the sport and actually putting time back into our sport, we're going to, we're probably not going to see any progress until that point. Yeah. And I think, you know, like we're just that first generation of athletes that um, kind of have to go through this growing pain. And yeah. Hopefully when we're 40 or 50, looking back on it, you know, like the sport is at a better place and people are able to do this as a profession. And we look back on it and be like, yeah, we were, you know, racing for chump change, like just, you know, like the good old days kind of thing. And I think, I think it will get there. Um, yeah. Yeah. Oh, and I see no, I see no reason why our sport can't be the fun run of the water and it, and it can't be like the triathlon. Like you look at the, the guys in the triathlon, they're running around for a lot more money than we are. And like, why is their sport more appealing than ours? It's, it's not really that much different. So I think that there will be a, there'll be a growth period, but we just, it probably won't be for us, but it will be for the next generation. Mm. And um, I hope, I hope it sort of is better for them than it is for us. And yeah, I'm yeah. it's really exciting. I think it's a, it's a exciting time to be in the sport. Cause you know, like in this day and age, you can't really be, at the forefront of a new sport anymore you know everything's you know there's not many new sports that come around like back you know a hundred years ago like there were probably new sports coming up like every year kind of thing so it's a it's a great experience and sometimes i stress over it but when you look at the big picture it's like it's a cool spot to be in for sure so looking at the big picture for kenny Kaneko, where do you see yourself in five ten years and how is this all going to evolve for you do you think um my biggest thing for me is just trying to get people um closer to the water in japan because um 
because we are an I we're an island country with so much access to river and the waters but for some reason you know people are don't associate with the ocean and um I think that is and culturally you know we're uh we're water people like fishermen and like people that travel by the sea and stuff and um I hope that because paddling got me out of a tough spot in life and there's a lot of people going through tough times over here in Japan because of their work hours or because of their situation um in their individual lives like I know that just being out in the ocean can help with that situation and um I just want to help as people as possible to get on the water so I'm doing programs with um the Hayama um town that I live in and the schools here and stuff and that's kind of um where I want to see myself in five ten years is still be competitive in the races I want to do because I still see myself growing as an athlete but at the same time growing the sport of paddling you know I don't look at myself as a professional stand-up paddler I like to call myself an ocean paddler because it doesn't matter what I'm paddling as long as I'm paddling in the ocean like that's kind of what I want to spread so a six-man canoe is the best way to get kids on the water um people that want like the surfing experience I'll get on the stand-ups and just trying to grow the sport in Japan for people to live a healthier life is kind of my goal in the next five ten years Yeah, it's good to hear, and I hope I hope it works out, and I hope we see a lot more Japanese people, obviously, getting involved in stand up or or outrigger, or once you work out how to paddle surf ski and get that paddle out of the water, you'll do some <laughs> surf ski stuff as well. Yeah, yeah. If I uh, can yeah, find the time. <laughs> yeah, I think I think it's really cool, and to see your sort of approach to how you're, um, I guess, targeting the Japanese population and you sort of you obviously feel a lot more comfortable in the culture now and you, you've got your wife and your two kids um how important have your support structures been over the past well, i guess 15 years that you've been doing paddling now or no probably not 15 years about 12 13 years you've been doing paddling how important is is your wife and your family so um i'm sure you know how important it is as an athlete to have that support structure and um you know, people like I always had my parents that I can count on, you know, they always have my back with whatever I do. They never told me to do this or do that. Um, they raised me to do what I love to do in life. And um, that's why I probably live the life I do now. And my little brother is a musician, you know, and he makes a life doing that. And um, but when I looked at marriage and stuff, um, a lot of people are like, oh, you're, you know, you're getting married, like, you're not going to be able to do what you love to do and stuff. But, and people kind of talk bad about getting married sometimes, you know, like, mm. but, like, if I have something to say is like getting married and having a family is probably the best thing in my life. Because, yeah, it, they give me a reason to wake up on those rainy cold days and go for a paddle and go train and they're just it's I don't think you can have a bigger motivator in your life than family you know and my wife is has been with with me through the good times and the tough times and um I'm always thankful for my family and even in this COVID um situation 
I do find myself empty and, you know, like, what am I doing kind of thing. But when I see my family at the dining table, it's like, you know, I can go to sleep at night. So, um, yeah, they're, they're a cure for all, like all disease. They're a medicine for all disease kind of thing. And, and with, and with COVID at the moment, um, how are you dealing with that? Like, like mentally and, and physically are you still being able to get out and train or are you guys in full lockdown like how is how are you approaching the situation and, and what are you doing to try and fill your time so the government in japan is you know like kind of it's our government is very weird in a sense that they ask us to stay home but they can't really lock us down because that's the law in japan so um i can still get on the water um but we're because you know because i am a public figure like if i wasn't i could probably still do clinics and stuff but because i am like i have to be careful of what i do and what i say so i've kind of stopped all my clinics and um as you know there's no races so i still get to go out on the water every day but you know i try to find other stuff to do right now like um i started a veggie garden you know and i started fishing off my oc1 which i haven't caught a fish yet but it's a it's something to keep me busy and um little projects like um i've been doing uh instagram live stuff for my japanese audience and stuff and it's kind of like what you're doing but it's i love listening to podcasts and podcasts are not big in japan yeah like for some reason, but people commute like four hours a day. So I see an opportunity to influence people through that, um, that avenue and try and try and make it a podcast, but I'm having a hard time trying to start one. You know, I have the videos, so you would probably be a person I'd ask for advice on that. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I, I just make it up as I go. Like everything that I do, I, I only started this probably doing this about six, six weeks ago now, I think it was. I, mm. I did a live stream with Starboard Sup, um, just to explain their boards and Chris Coove and the team over there were pushing me to do that. And they're like, oh, can you do a, a workout video? And then I was like, oh, I'll try and do some live streams before and after my races just to give people an mm. insight into what I was doing. And then obviously that fell over and then Dean Gardner was in Perth. I was like, oh, I should just do a live stream with you. And and it was like, yeah, yeah, because I actually recorded with him a couple of years back, and I was going—I had this idea back then, but I just never did anything about it. And then, yeah, just did it. I don't know, like, and then people—I did the videos, and then people were asking, "Oh, can you put this on a podcast? So I can listen to it." And then I did that, and then I don't know. People give me advice all the time to do different things, and I'm just like, "What well, you're asking me to do?" And probably other people are thinking it, but not asking me to do it. So. Yeah, I just, I don't know, I just do different stuff and it, I don't know, like it's not, I don't know, like I can't really monetize or anything like that, but it's mm. just cool for me to talk story with different people and I guess share the paddling story with a lot of different people out there in the community and in different parts of the world who probably can't paddle at the moment and can't get out. Yeah. So that's the idea, just to try and continue the passion of the paddling and keep people positive in this negative time. Yeah, and I think I love what you're doing with it. You know, it's it's like you said, it's trying to keep that positive vibe going because there's so much negative negativity on social media and Instagram, and you know, it's like in paddling, there's no races, so why not listen to one of your podcasts? You know, and I've I've actually um, 
had a great time listening to like I really like the one with um Corey Hill and I listened to the one with Hank this morning and it's just getting perspective of how people live and how their mind works is yeah has been a very good opportunity to get me through this like COVID situation yeah yeah so well, for, for me that. yeah thank you for listening and being supportive of it and I know that it's just, it's just yeah, a very different approach and everyone has so many great stories out there and are going through different things and have dealt with different challenges and seeing things in different ways can help you. I know it's helped me just being able to get up every morning and go, I'm going to talk to someone today about their life and what they've been doing and hopefully it motivates me to go training and I've been doing, it's been like weird. I've been like doing actually training sessions with like Christy, like every day we do like a run or a corset <laughs> and that like, we would I never do that. 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 Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We yeah. would never do that. She's like been motivating me to train cause she's like, I'm, I'm going to get fit. I'm going to get strong. And I was like, Oh cool. I'll just do like, cause I'm right. I write her plans and then I just come and do them with her. And mm. that's been really cool to do. And just taking a step back was normally when you train, you're training for a goal and you, I can't just do a core workout in the backyard. I'll go for it. 30 minute run i've got to like i'm doing that mm. i don't know two or three sessions a day where you've got like those goals in place you're working a certain system and you've sure. got to have that consistency when you can like you did another session it's just exhausting so it's been it's been cool <laughs> to sort of take a step t- take a step back and be able to do that yeah we might see christy in one of the races in japan you know she probably yeah. should hop into one of them if you're yeah. traveling over here yeah <laughs> yeah well i'm gonna I'll, we'll get there i, I got her to come well she got me to come she actually got me to go out in the double ski the other day so i took her for like a 10-day <laughs> paddle along the river and i'd paddle for a bit and then she'd stop and i'd be like oh it feels better now you're not paddling <laughs> <laughs> awesome. oh that's really good but is there anything you wanted to add yeah. like is there any advice to people out there you'd like to give out or is there um things you want to share like with your businesses that you have if you if, they, if you want to um, shout out those right now um yeah, I'm just thankful for my sponsors that help me um, live the life I do and help me help me to do what I love to do for a living, you know? Um, and as far as my businesses, like, it's, it's very catered to the Japanese audience because um, that's kind of, I feel like that's my niche. And um, also, one thing in Japan is a lot gets lost in translation, you know? Um, there's a lot of people that are, I don't want to talk bad about them, but are like pretenders, you know, just because the audience doesn't understand what's happening in the real world. Like people can't get access to sub racer articles or like even total sub or like even Facebook posts because Google translate is not good enough, you know? And there's a lot of myths over here and um, I kind of want to make sure that the Japanese people get the right information about paddling and the community and um, all that. So that's kind of why I cater everything to the Japanese audience. Yeah. Um, I want to make sure that people do get the fulfilling paddling experience. Yeah. 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 And I think it's really cool that you're doing that because I know that, I guess coming from, I'm, I'm only English speaking and even trying to get things out to, to the Europeans or different languages, like there's always a, a, a language barrier. I remember trying to, to coach a couple of people in Spain, like why Google Translate? And it is really hard. So I was like, I just sort of went, oh, I'm just going to do English stuff because I can't get my um, my ideas and my approach out correctly because it's just not possible. And I think, yeah, yeah like it's such a cool niche that you have in Japan that you can 
have a really big influence on the paddling scene over there. And uh, I really hope that it does grow and with your help. And I think, I think um, for the younger generation in Japan, you know, it's like, because there's such a big cultural difference from Japan to say Australia or the US, it's hard for them to imagine trying to become a Michael Booth, you know, because of the upbringing and the culture. And if I can help those kids in a way where it's like, oh, I want to be like Kenny because he's Japanese and he lives in Japan, like same DNA, same height, whatever, you know, like um, if I can just be that step in their, um, in their path to their goal, then that's kind of what I want to be. So, yeah. Yeah. I I think it's awesome, mate. And I really appreciate you coming on today and having a chat. Mm. Um, yeah, thank yeah, you. I really appreciate your time. Um, to everyone out there watching the Boothcast, I really appreciate your support. It's been a really cool experience to hear all these uh, different stories. Just had Kenny Koneko from Japan online. Uh, if you need anything, um, if you want, want to look at any of the um, stories or the videos that we've been posting, you can go to Michael Booth. There's a section on there in the video section called Boothcast. And if you want to listen to them on podcasts, you can go to iTunes or Spotify or any of those places so yeah if if there's any people out there who you want me to interview you want me to talk to i've had so many great suggestions and my list keeps getting longer so um really appreciate it can be from any paddle sport or business or anything like that there's no segregation here we're trying to really raise the profile of paddling sports altogether so um kenny really appreciate your time today yeah thank you michael cheers cheers